So hi, it's Mike Wheeler, co-host with Kim Leary of Agility at Work. We have quite a menu in front of us. Our guest today is Richard Schell, who has written about negotiation and bargaining for advantage, about persuasion in the art of woo, and now brand new book, The Conscience Code. Kim, it seems to me we have the opportunity to pull together a number of threads uh, obviously, matters of conscience, moral choices, uh, but both in a leadership mode and in a negotiation mode. Anything in particular you hope we can uh, uncover in this conversation with Richard? You know, I think I'm just really interested in this moment in time that makes this topic so critical for all of our students and our colleagues and for ourselves to take up. So I'm really excited to get going. Well, let's invite uh, Richard in and do just that. So Richard, great to have you uh, join us on Agility at Work. It's interesting that we have you here with your new book, The Conscience Code, Lead With Your Values, Advance Your Career. I don't know if you've had the opportunity, for better or worse, to read my new newsletter, The Jazz of Negotiation, on Substack. I'll give the URL for it if anybody cares. But last week I put up a uh, poll of sorts based on a scenario where a person has the opportunity to buy a vacation cottage from an elderly person who has priced it way too low. And so the question was, do you snap the offer up? Do you counter offer? Or do you tell the person that they're way below the market price? When you think about negotiation, how, do, how should we think about an issue like that in terms of disclosure about fairness, whatever our definition of that might be. I'm calling on both your recent work, but also uh, going back to bargaining for advantage. Yeah. Hi, Mike. It's a great question. And I actually saw your poll, maybe somewhere along in our discussion. I'll echo one of the comments to it, which was, uh, this is a great question, Mike, but you didn't give your answer. <laughs> so so we'll see, uh, see what you would do. I think I would process this question myself as using a concept that I have uh, introduced in the conscience code, which is what would a person of conscience do? And I think of myself as a person of conscience. I was a conscientious objector in the Vietnam War and I teach this. And so when a question like that comes up, if you frame it as what would an effective negotiator do, then, then you have to, to puzzle through, well, what is an effective negotiator? Is they, are they someone who always gets the best price? Are they someone who makes clever moves? Are they someone who creates value? This is a pretty straightforward question, I think, of conscience. You've got someone, the way you painted the picture, it sounds like they have less than their full faculties. They've obviously not prepared the negotiation very well, or they're poorly advised if they've underpriced it in such an obvious way that you can tell uh, as someone who doesn't know them well. And I think in those cases, I would take a step. I, would, I don't know that I would say, hey, I want to pay you more. I think I would say, I'd love to bid on your place. And in exchange for letting me be the first and only bidder for two weeks, I'd like to give you some advice. And the advice I'd like to give you is that you consult with a real estate appraiser uh, and make sure that your value is correctly priced to market. 
And then I'd like the sole right to bid on it after you've done that little step. And then I'd still be able to negotiate with the person, but they would at least be fully informed of their position. And uh, hopefully they'd actually feel pretty good about me because I've done something that a trustworthy person would do. And I think we probably reach a pretty amicable solution. So I think that's what I do. But I'd get there by starting with person of conscience. Okay. So you get there that way. And the fairness issue isn't really price related, if I have it right, but it's whether you're equally situated, that you're they're dealing with similar information and somebody does not have the upper hand. And, and it's not just that they don't have the information. The, the scenario involves someone who is least suggested may not have full capacity. It's interesting that you read it that way because that's not intended. It's also interesting that almost everybody assumes the person is a woman. And I'm very careful not to, not to express gender issues. Kim, when you're teaching leadership, adaptive leadership, do moral questions come in uh, intentionally or do they arise? Uh, what's fair in leadership? Uh, well... I think, uh, and I expect Richard would uh, resonate with this, that the moral issues are just baked into most of the challenges that people have about how to exercise their authority or how to practice leadership. You know, um, in, in often it's not at all uncommon, especially with our Kennedy School students, that the work that they're doing is trying to mobilize public constituencies. And that means that not everyone in that stakeholder group is as well prepared as others. Hmm. So I love uh, Richard's example because it gives us a model of what it means to equip people to participate in participatory processes. Sometimes that means that we have to, you know, if we come in with an ideal of what a civic discourse should look like, maybe that, that needs to shift because that's not the ideal in a given community. But there's something here about how can we provide one another and the community with the tools we need in order to really reckon honestly with the choices that we'll have to make and ultimately live with. Just a quick thought. You know, I've got a good education, but I don't know a lot about technology. If there's an environmental problem in my hometown of Gloucester, Massachusetts, uh, and it was a big deal, I'd be at a hearing but I would need, at the very least, a tutorial on things that are measured parts per million and so forth. Uh, somebody who has a science background is obviously in a different situation. So if you're going to really work for the public good, there has to be some way in which people are supported to understand really what the options and consequences are. Richard, you were going to say something? I conceive of negotiation. This goes back to, I was a lawyer long ago, and I remember being mystified by negotiations as a lawyer, which is probably why I spent the next 30 years <laughs> studying it. Uh, but what mystified me was we we're going to settle a lawsuit. And, you know, there was a fair, fair solution. It wasn't that hard to figure out. And so I found myself puzzled. Why is it that we have to go through this dance where you take a position, I take a position, we both argue, and then we, you know, do some concessions, and we end up somewhere pretty close to exactly where I knew we were going to end up all along. And I realized about 10 years later, that what's going on is very much what Kim just said, what's going on is negotiation works, because it's a participatory process. And 
you know, the winner's curse, you know how saying yes too quickly to someone's opening offer causes regret. And the reason it does is because we haven't gotten a process that reassures us that, you know, we were a full participant and we're uneasy as a result of that. I think the negotiation process works when it works. It's as much about how we get there as it is where we get. And the, uh, the example you gave, I, I think, is a good one, because the way you pose the question is a kind of where do we get, where should we get, but actually how we should get there is the real puzzle. And I think in leadership, uh, a, a good leader, especially an adaptive leader, uh, is someone who's very keenly aware of how we get there matters as much, in some cases, even more than where we're going to end up. Larry Suskind has done a lot of important work uh, on that. Uh, Dealing with an Angry Public is, uh, is one of his books that comes to mind. Kim, in a leadership context, what are the process issues that create basically a, a fair table for decision making? Well, I think so much of that is, you know, linked to the particularities of the situation. But in general, I would say, that recognizing that not everyone defines fairness in precisely the same way is a really important dimension of the capacity to operate with stakeholders who have very different points of view about the problem and the solution. And being able to invite people into a learning conversation to learn what we're really talking about and how it's being defined, and also the capacity as Richard describes in his book of being able to articulate different value propositions that are in play and begin to uh, recognize that there are people who make those decisions or advance those decisions. And we have to figure out how to work with those people as well as the differing perspectives that they have. I couldn't agree more in, in the way I teach negotiation. Um, early on in every course I teach, I make the point that people are not negotiating over assets. They're negotiating over what assets mean. And there's this very limited sort of dimension of shared reality at the beginning of a process. And part of an effective negotiator's job is to expand the pool of that shared meaning so that it actually does embrace more of the people in the room, which is part, you know, you've gotta, you've gotta work it. I like the way you put it in terms of the the meaning of the asset, but can you give an example how somebody's understanding of the meaning might expand? Oh, absolutely. So classic example, uh, you're an entrepreneur, uh, you've spent your life building a, a business and uh, two, uh, two groups show up that want to acquire it. Uh, one group understands that that asset, uh, the collection of assets that you've got there is your baby, it's your family, it's the meaning of your life. And they negotiate from the point of view that they're going to make it a legacy, that they're going to honor the, the, the uh, thing that you've created and to expand and build on it. And they make an offer of, you know, a hundred whatevers. Uh, and then the second buyer is uh, essentially arbitraging this uh, as an opportunity to buy the assets, break them up and throw them away and do other things with them. And they offer you 110 of whatever the money unit is. I think the entrepreneur is going to take the 100 because the person who's going to buy the asset from them 
understands what it means to them. And it's the same, it's the same business, but it means completely different things, uh, or could be. Uh, and, uh, you know, people are persuaded uh, when they felt that they've been understood. Well, but uh, let me push just a little bit. Uh, use the word persuaded. Uh, if I'm a con man, and are we, I suppose there are con women too, just want to be <laughs> this, but if I'm a con man, I can turn the charm on. I can tell you how much admiration I have, Richard, for what you've put together. And I certainly understand the challenges you faced and that you bore on when others might have, have crumbled. What you've built here is absolutely magnificent. And uh, the opportunity to build on this and grow it and make it permanent um, is something I'm deeply passionate about. And we signed the papers and I break everything apart the, ne the next day. Where does, if we talk about conscience, where does that fit into persuasion? Well, I, you know, there's, uh, you and I both taught law and, you know, there's no rule on earth that can prevent fraud. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, so if you're negotiating with a psychopath, the chances are you know, the best, uh, the best antidote is to be careful. If anything, your question makes my point. Because the psychopath is someone skilled at understanding another person's mindset without having any empathy. And, uh, and so it is the skill of understanding the other person's mindset and to find the meaning that this has that makes them an effective person, even if they're a, a, a venal and crooked soul. Uh, but a great effective negotiator would have that same insight, but also have empathy. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I think, that's why it matters so much uh, for people to really go to the values of a situation and understand how to appeal to people based on shared values. You, you know, you can always trick people into thinking that they're shared and then you can rip them off. But I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about people who actually are people's of, people of conscience who'd like to be more effective at being that way. A lot of my work, Richard, has been opportunistic, being in the right place at the right time. But as I think of your trilogy of books, you've got the negotiation book, Bargaining for Advantage, you have the persuasion book, The Art of Woo, and now, just recently, The Conscience Code. It's interesting how one sort of leads to the other, it seems to me. You could still have a trilogy of books, but I wonder whether the content would be any different if you had done them in different order, which, which it's speculative, but but I'm just wondering how one book informed the other. And if I could just maybe jump in with a, maybe an additional question connected to that, Richard, is does the time frame matter? Are there certain kinds of challenges that have led to this book now that maybe would not have been in play enough for readers earlier on? Just curious. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Well, I'll begin with Kim's question and lead back into Mike's. So yes, the answer is yes. Uh, I think the salience of value conflicts now in the workplace and in the culture has very definitely placed this top of mind for me, which is the reason why I would write about these uh, kinds of conflicts now, as opposed to 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. I, I think it's the case that everything I've written, whether it was a scholarly article or a book, the next project has always started as a footnote in the last one. Hmm. And in negotiation, I have 
aspects of persuasion and influence, but I had started with the, the, what I thought was the insight that everything's a negotiation, which some people espouse. And I, I kind of thought it was. I think that's a good reminder when you don't negotiate enough that you ought to think about it more. But then I realized, no, everything's not a negotiation and that persuasion and influence are actually very distinctive patterns and ways of conducting yourself that, that allow you to appeal to people's minds and hearts and not necessarily have the outcome be an allocation of some scarce resource. You can literally say, well, maybe we ought to think about democracy this way. And it's not a negotiation. It's profoundly a moment of influence and persuasion. And I think leaders often are much more on the persuasion and influence channel although they are always have to be ready to be on the negotiation channel because you never know. But that's where they, uh, you know, they, they paint their visions, they rally their followers and they get people moving in the same direction. Uh, and, and, and then at the edges, you're negotiating the resources to implement that vision. Mm-hmm. So that's, that got me to that. And then this conflict management in this very important realm is a kind of influence and persuasion problem. So I've been drilling down at each level. You, you know, those uh, very much uh, resonate with my experiences of organizational leadership, where you come into a new organization, particularly in early role, and you realize, you know, you're not decreeing anything. Um, you are really trying to work with people to mobilize them, to move them. And by the time, in many instances, the challenge gets up to you, it's gotten big and hairy and complicated. Um, and the only way forward is to try to negotiate and figure out uh, who's who, what's what, and where did things go so badly wrong? Yeah. Mike, I would say one of the biggest things that I got as a big aha along the trail of writing these books is the difference between a conflict over interest and a conflict over beliefs. Mm. And a conflict over interests are negotiable. I can, you know, if, I, if, if you'll do this for me, I can do that for you. I'll solve this problem for you if you'll solve that problem for me. And we, we can't all have everything, but we can figure out how to help each other get enough of whatever it is to resolve our matter and move forward. But a conflict over beliefs, which looks like a conflict over interest sometimes, you both argue, people get stubborn, uh, they, they sort of lose perspective, uh, they get emotional. But that's a wholly different creature uh, because you don't really negotiate with someone to say, uh, I'd like to negotiate with you about your beliefs in a religion, or I'd like to negotiate with you about your beliefs related to what a fair society looks like. You just don't do that. And that it's different tools, you have different goals, and it requires kind of different insights into the psychology of human behavior. But Richard, don't we do that in our political discourse, which we're all talking about? Aren't we fundamentally negotiating in a sense over beliefs about what direction we should go in a organization or even in a country? Absolutely. And I think if you want a simple frame for why it's gotten so difficult is that legislation used to be a process where we melded interests. And so we could give one side a little bit of this if they give us a little bit of that. And then we had some common ground over here. And then it's, it's, it's devolved into polarization over beliefs, which can't be negotiated. 
As soon as you start compromising a belief, you look unprincipled and then you lose your political constituency. And that's a whole different matter than saying, uh, you know, maybe we should build out this parcel of real estate in this part of the state and do it, you know, over this number of years or do it with uh, these people get to go first and then those people get to go second. So I think it's, it's been a real problem that we've transitioned from basically disagreeing over interests to disagreeing over beliefs. I think Joe Biden's nostalgia for the old Senate where they used to horse trade and they used to work across the aisle and they used to compromise with each other. That's really based on that notion that they used to actually negotiate. And now, as soon as someone steps up to say, I'm willing to compromise, their team interprets that as a betrayal. And it's a problem. It's a serious problem. I think my next book is going to be on that. So, Richard, you know, I asked you uh, how your first book linked to the second and the second linked to the third. You've outlined a very serious challenge here about how we reconcile competing beliefs. I hope you don't take it as a tough assignment, but I think we'll all be the better off if uh, that's your fourth book. So I'm so glad you could join us, and I am so respectful in terms of what you've contributed over the years. Uh, I'm just asking you to do a little bit more. So thanks a lot. Kim, any last words? Just uh, thank you for this very important set of reflections. I think uh, being able to be clear about when we're negotiating over interest, when we're negotiating over beliefs is just in and of itself is a, a good way for people to begin to reflect on what's at stake. So Kim, I think we just had a great time here uh, dealing with difficult issues. And Richard has been so influential uh, in negotiation and in persuasion as well. And I think that his uh, conscience code um, is going to make an equally powerful uh, impact. Uh, I left him with an assignment that uh, uh, I don't think I'd be up to, but uh, I certainly hope he can make progress on this and share his insight, wisdom, and values, obviously, with a broad readership. Any last thoughts, Kim? Yeah, just that uh, what a beautiful interweaving of thoughts about leadership and the challenges for negotiation and really putting the two together in a very eloquent and elegant way. 